What if a friend suggested to you that you just load up your family, hit the road on a trip with no destination in mind, with no time constraints on when you had to be back, just take as long as you want, come back whenever you choose, it's all yours, you're free, just go. Now, we might think that that sort of freedom of the road sounds exciting and there's a certain romanticism to it, but when it comes down to it, no responsible parent would ever load up their children and hit the road with no plan whatsoever, with no limits on where they're going to go, how far they're going to go, where they're going to stay, what they need to pack to take with them. Are we going to the mountains? Are we going to the beach? What do we need to bring with us? And certainly not, at least not in my household, without sitting down with the checkbook and seeing how much can we afford. But that's exactly how our modern society tells us to live our lives. Like we're just on some kind of aimless journey. We're told to follow our hearts, to do what feels good, go wherever our dreams lead us, whatever our whims, our desires, our impulses, just do it. And we're told that this kind of unbridled autonomy and freedom of choice is the path to happiness and fulfillment. But if you think about it, lack of direction never leads to a sense of purpose. And God never invites us to aimlessly wander. He always calls us to a journey with a destination, a mission with a defined purpose. And so we see that when God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. He sets them free from slavery, and He had a purpose and a destination in mind for them. Now, we discover this purpose when God brings them to Mount Sinai. And God says in Exodus chapter 19, Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Israel's purpose. That's why God has set them free from slavery in Egypt. But then we also discover that God had a destination for them. He didn't bring them out of Egypt just to let them kind of wander around aimlessly in the desert. He brought them out of Egypt to take them to the Canaan land, the promised land, the land that He promised their forefather Abraham He would give to His descendants. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. And we read in there a description of this land. Listen to how God describes their destination to them. He says in Deuteronomy 11:8, Observe therefore all the commands I am giving you today so that you may have strength to go in and take over the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. And so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants. A land flowing with milk and honey. The land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you're crossing, the Jordan, to take possession of, is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. Now that is a destination. I mean, imagine, if you will, all the places you've ever wanted to travel to. Maybe for some of you it's Disney World, or maybe it's Hawaii, or it's Europe, 
or a cruise to Alaska and put all those together. Israel, this, this Canaan land that Israel was going to was better than all of that together. It was paradise. And they're not just going there for vacation. They're going there to live and thrive as a nation. Now, sadly, the people that God freed from Egypt and was going to lead to this good and beautiful land never got set foot in it. Less than two years after the Exodus, just two years, after those amazing events of the Exodus, Israel stands ready to enter and conquer the promised land. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy 1. And here Moses is sort of recounting the story of their journey. And he starts in verse 19. Here Israel stands, two years out of the Exodus, ready to go into this land. Then as the Lord your God commanded us, we set out from Horeb, went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. And then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. What's that say? Has given you the land. The land is already theirs. He's already given it to them. They just need to go up and take possession of it. It's like a gift. If somebody gives you a gift, the gift is already yours. You just have to do what? Take it. Open it. Receive it. God has already given them this land. They just need to take it. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, well, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us, bring back a report about the route we're to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country, came to the valley of Eshcol and explored it, taking with them some of the fruit of the land. They brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Now consider the circumstances surrounding this group of people. Okay, they have witnessed God miraculously defeat the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, Egypt and its king Pharaoh. Israel saw God bring the ten plagues upon Egypt. He, they saw God part the Red Sea for them to cross on and then bring the water crashing down on the chariot army pursuing them, wiping them out. God had miraculously provided food and water for them on their journey. God at Sinai powerfully revealed His presence and His glory through thunder and lightning and cloud and smoke on the mountain. And then they saw God's glory come down and descend upon and enter into the tabernacle. They were led through the wilderness by day with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. They witnessed what happened to those who rejected God and rebelled against God, how His wrath would consume them. These people have seen all of that firsthand. They didn't just read about it in Sunday school. They were there. They got the t-shirt. And now God is promising to deliver the land that He's already given them into their hands. God is promising certain victory. It couldn't get any easier. God's saying, I've already done the work. It's a done deal. You just go in and take it. They know He can do it. I mean, this is a ragtag, backwoods bunch of tribes. They couldn't stand anything against an empire like Egypt. Yet Egypt has been decimated. And after spying out the land, 
They know firsthand that it's a good land, just as God promised. But instead of trusting God's Word, they trust their own fear. Instead of focusing on God's strength, they can't see past their own weaknesses. Look at verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are larger with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Really? The Lord hates them? Really? After all of that, that's, that's the message they've got. God must hate us. God's going to deliver them into the hands of the Amorites? Did they not just a few verses earlier hear God say the exact opposite? That God had already delivered the Amorites into their hands? Yet Israel, they do what we all tend to do. They look at the problem before them and assess it based on what they could do. And they resign themselves to failure. The people are stronger than us. The walls are too tall for us. We're going to die. And God's people throughout the Bible fall into the same trap time and again. Israel, later on, they've got an army facing off across the valley against another army of the Philistines. And the Philistines have a secret weapon, a giant called Goliath. And Israel stands there and trembles in fear until a little shepherd boy comes along with a stone and a sling. And he brings down Goliath and the Philistines because he knows that no matter how big Goliath is, God is bigger. Then we come to the New Testament. Peter walking on water on the Sea of Galilee to Jesus. And as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus, he can walk on the water. But instead, he takes his eyes off Jesus and focuses on the wind and the waves, and he sinks. Jesus and the disciples are surrounded by a crowd of over 5,000 people, and they're hungry. It's Sunday afternoon, and, and they want some, some supper, some lunch. And there's no Chick-fil-A around, and it'd be closed anyway because it's a Sunday. And Jesus says, feed them. And they say, how are we going to feed them? Chick-fil-A's closed. We wouldn't have enough money anyway. There's 5,000 of them. But Jesus takes a boy's little lunch, his sack lunch, his Lunchables, and he feeds 5,000 people with 12 baskets of leftovers. You see, God is constantly reminding us that we don't have to be afraid because we can trust in His great love and power. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And this is very familiar to what Moses says next to the children of Israel in verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. 
all the way you went until you reached this place. God carried Israel like a father carrying a son. How at this point can they doubt Him? But this generation who witnessed God literally deliver them through the waters failed to believe that God would or could deliver the promised land into their hands. And so in verse 32, In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, He was angry and solemnly swore, Not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it. And I will give him and his descendants the land he sets his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either. I think there a little bit Moses is maybe a little bit kind of glossing over, you know, his, his part in that. But, you know, anyway, you shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. The little ones, now get this, the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around, set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Israel would rather return to slavery in Egypt than trust God to lead them into freedom in the promised land. Now think about that for just a minute. Let that sink in for just a minute. They would rather return to slavery in Egypt where their baby boys were being slaughtered than to trust God enough to enter into this promised land that God has said He's already given to them. How often do we allow fear to turn us from God's glorious future for us and make us tuck tail and run back to the good old days? You remember the good old days, right? If you stop and think for just a minute, if we're honest with ourselves, the good old days weren't that great, were they? Yet we still tend to turn back to our old ways. Even if those old ways were, were destructive and unhealthy and led us to misery. Alcoholics live with the constant struggle of picking up that bottle again. Drug addicts who've been clean for decades know they can't let down their guard for a minute or they'll find themselves back in the gutter of addiction. Somehow, Satan convinces us that those old, destructive, sinful ways are somehow better than the way we're living today. He somehow makes those old ways so attractive to us. And it's a constant struggle. Though God puts before us life and blessing and freedom, we have a tendency to want to choose death and curses and slavery, don't we? It's just part of our fallen nature. Jesus told one man who wanted to follow Him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't serve God if you're constantly looking back at your past. Isaiah 43, 18-19 goes on to say, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. God says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God says, let go of the past. Forget the former things because I'm doing something new. 
And remember, Paul said in Philippians 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the upward, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was the choice Israel faced. Do they press on to the upward, to the goal of the upward prize of possessing the promised land? And having a future as God's kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Or do they turn around and head back toward a life of slavery in Egypt? That was their choice. And they made their choice. And God honored that choice. God always honors our choices. From the choice that Adam and Eve made in the Garden of Eden to the choices that we make today. God gives us the choice, life or death, blessing or cursing, Freedom or slavery, belonging or exile. And whatever we choose, God honors that choice. And so God sends them packing back toward the Red Sea, back towards Egypt to let them aimlessly wander in the desert for the rest of their lives. Specifically for 40 years until their children are old enough to possess the land. But look what they do instead. After God brings this judgment on them, look at verse 41. Then you replied, we have sinned against the Lord. Okay, so at least they admit that. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. Wait, what? So every one of you put on his weapon, thinking it easy to go to the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up to the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Horma. You came back and wept before the Lord, and he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. Doesn't it sound like a parent and their child, doesn't it? And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Many days, 40 years. See, you can't have it both ways. When God promised victory, they were afraid to trust Him and go claim His promise. But when they knew God wasn't with them, they thought they could handle it on their own and take the land anyway. That's the definition of foolish. I mean, really, that's just crazy. They were afraid and doubted God's ability to defeat their enemies, but arrogant enough to think they could do it without Him. What sense does that make? But don't we all do that? Is this not one of the problems with churches today? We fail to take God at His Word. We fail to trust in His Spirit and in His Word to give us fruitful, victorious lives. We don't do the very simple things that God commands us to do, like pray, read our Bible, share the gospel and make disciples, love others as we love ourselves, love God with everything that we have and everything that we are, worship together, be generous in our giving, serve one another. We don't trust God enough to do those things because we don't really believe that they'll make any difference in our lives. Just be honest. When we don't pray, it's because we don't believe in prayer. If you're not reading God's Word, it's because you don't really believe there's any value to it. If you did, you'd read it. When we fail to give and serve, what does that tell us about our belief in God? 
And instead, we put all of our trust in slick resources, programs and events that we pay other people to do. We put our faith and trust in self-help books and gurus and health and wealth TV preachers, and we think that will grow our church. That will fix our marriage. That will discipline our children. That will make us have the best life now. Well, how's that been working out for us? The church in the West is in rapid decline. Our culture in America is becoming more and more secular and depraved by the day. We are dangerously close to losing the next generation to a purely secular society. How's this approach working for your marriage, your children, your peace of mind, your walk with Christ? What choice have you made? What are those consequences? So let's jump ahead. Forty years. Israel, the next generation, is ready to enter the promised land and lay claim to this ancient promise. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Once again, the people of Israel have a choice to make. Will this new generation be like their parents? Or will they make a better choice? And notice here that God makes several promises and several commands, several expectations to Joshua and to Israel. And God often does that. He links His commands with promises. And He puts before us the choice of life and blessings or death and curses. And it's our choice. But the question is, how do we choose? How do you choose life and blessing instead of death and curses? By either obeying or disobeying. That, that's how we choose. If we want to enjoy God's blessings and all He has promised to us, we must choose to trust and obey. Now, in this passage of Scripture, we see God's promises for what to do for Israel. And we'll throw them up there on the screen because there's several of them. God promises to give them land every place where they step. And then God outlines the boundaries of this land that is already theirs. God promises victory and protection. He says that no one will be able to stand against them. God promises His presence time and again. He says He will be with Joshua just as He was with Moses. 
He will never leave or forsake him. In verse 9, God says he will go with Joshua wherever he goes. And in verses 6 through 8, Joshua is promised that he will be prosperous and successful in leading Israel to inherit the land. God makes some pretty amazing promises. In short, to put it simply, God promises his presence with Joshua and Israel, his authority for Joshua to lead the people to possess the land, and the power to accomplish the mission. That's what God promises. His presence, his authority, and his power. And notice then what God expects of them. He expects them to get ready, go, actually cross the Jordan, and actually step foot in this promised land that God is giving them. They've got to actually go and do this. They can't just kind of sit back and say, isn't it nice, God's given us this land. They've got to go and take it. He tells them to be strong and very courageous. They have to be careful to obey everything that He's told them. They can't turn to the left or to the right. He says, don't let the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it, think on it night and day. And do what it says. And again, at the end, he restates this. Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or discouraged. To put it simply, God commands Joshua and Israel to trust God's love and obey God's law. Trust His love and obey His law. And thankfully... Israel, the next generation, under Joshua's leadership, makes the right choice. They do indeed step foot into the land, trusting God, obeying His commands, and God blesses them. They win victory after victory. They witness God's mighty outstretched arm part the Jordan River for them to cross over and bring down the walls of Jericho. And they are established as a mighty nation. So... What does all of this mean for us as 21st century Christians living in Thompson, Georgia? How do we apply these stories to our lives? What does it mean for us to cross the Jordan and possess the land? I mean, God promised this land to Israel, right? Not to us, not to the church. And we don't have a promised land to conquer. We don't have a, an inheritance to possess, or do we? See, the great New Testament parallel to this transition from Moses to Joshua, from Deuteronomy to the book of Joshua, the parallel is at the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts. It's Jesus on the mountain getting ready to ascend to the Father and the church is about to be born and sent out on its worldwide mission. And just as Moses addressed Joshua and Israel before he died and commanded them to be strong and courageous and possess the land, so Jesus stood and addressed his followers before he ascended to heaven and commissioned them to be strong and courageous and go into all the world and make disciples. God promised Joshua and Israel his presence, his power, his authority. Well, listen to what Jesus promises us in the two different accounts of the Great Commission. The first one, we've already heard this morning, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Notice in here that Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here, Jesus promises us his authority, and His presence 
to go with us into all the world, to possess every corner of the earth for the glory and kingdom of God. Our mission is to make disciples, to expand God's kingdom so more and more people are liberated from slavery to sin and can become children of God. We see in Acts 1.8, Jesus says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus not only promised us His presence and His authority, but here He promises us His power. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can bear witnesses to Jesus Christ. And just as God laid out the dimensions of the land for Joshua, so Jesus sort of lays out the dimensions of our mission for us. It's a mission that begins at home. And it goes to our neighbors and our community. It goes to those people who are so totally different from us. And then it goes to the rest of the world. There are no borders, really. No boundaries, no limits to God's kingdom. It's a worldwide mission that starts with the person living next door to you. The question for us is whether or not we will trust the promises of God's presence and power and authority and step out in faith to share the gospel and make disciples? That's the question for us. Will we be like the generation of Israel and look at the world around us in fear, despairing that society is too far gone, the world too evil? What difference can we make anyway? Have you ever failed to share your faith with someone because you just didn't think you knew enough about the Bible? I just don't know enough. Uh, that's a job better suited for the preacher. What if they ask me a question I can't answer? I'm just not good enough a Christian. How is that any different than Israel looking at the mighty armies and cities of Canaan and trembling because they felt like grasshoppers in their midst? How is that any different? They didn't trust that God was bigger than the mighty walls of the cities or stronger than enemy armies. They didn't possess the land because they lacked faith in God's ability to give them victory. Aren't we guilty of the same thing today? I believe that many churches in America today, including our own, are plateaued and declining because we have refused to go and possess the land. We've refused to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. We're not engaging the community with the gospel as we should. People aren't interested in sharing their testimony with lost family and friends and neighbors. We don't want to share the gospel. We don't want to lead people to faith in Christ. We don't want to have to bring somebody under our wings to disciple. We would rather wander around aimlessly in a wilderness of the good old days, hanging on to sacred cows. You know, those programs and events and things that worked 30 years ago. We'd rather do that and just keep be content to worship with the same people and the same songs and the same ways that we always have. It takes spiritual courage and audacious faith in God's promises to dare to do something different to leave behind the past, to forget Egypt, and to step into the unknown future of God's grace. It takes a burden for the lost, driven by the love of God in our hearts for them, and a boldness to step foot into the lost world, to open our hearts and open our mouths to our neighbors and to invite them to faith in Christ Jesus, to invite them to a spiritual journey with us at First Baptist Church. Will we turn away from God's glorious 
future for this church, for you and your family, for His kingdom in this world, and be content to just wander around aimlessly until the church dies out? Or will we be like Joshua? Will we be strong and very courageous and take our community and our world for Christ because God's already given it to us? He's given us the commission. His Holy Spirit has gone before us, stirring in people's hearts, just waiting for us to go to them and to say something. One way we can start is by praying for our neighbors in our community. We've been focusing on that and emphasizing, pray for every home. But then we need to actually knock on some doors, pick up the phone, go across the street to the office next door, turn around to the kids sitting behind you in class, and actually invite someone to come to church with us. And that's the point of this month's emphasis, the big invite campaign. Would you watch this, this brief video about that? They're all around us. The 7.1 million Georgia residents apart from God. They're our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, even our kin. You probably already think about the fact that they are on their way to an eternity in hell apart from Christ. But here is what you may not be aware of. For every ten who are lost around us, seven of those have never been invited to church in their whole lives. What's worse, each year only two out of 100 churchgoers invite anyone to church. But 82% of our unchurched neighbors say they are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. What does this mean for Georgia Baptists? It means we are in the midst of a massive, untapped opportunity to have more guests than ever in our churches, if only an intentional effort is applied. With this in mind, our church has decided to unite with other Georgia Baptists to participate in the Big Invite Campaign. The Big Invite Campaign is designed to provide you and every other Georgia Baptist the tools needed to invite one million households across Georgia to Easter services this year. And it's easier than you think when we each do our part. Using a few simple tools that talk about Easter as a time for a new beginning, you'll discover super simple ways to help friends, neighbors, and loved ones think about Easter in a new light this year. And wouldn't it be great to see more come to church and to Christ this Easter as a result of your efforts? So, let's make eternal difference together by giving everyone in our area a really big invite to our church this Easter. It can't be simpler than that. Bring someone to worship with you Easter Sunday. Someone who doesn't go to church. Someone who isn't a Christian. Someone who maybe they grew up in church, but they've, they've just not been a part of any meaningful engagement in a church in a very long time. Invite them to come and worship with you and your family this Easter. At the exits in the vestibule and on either corner here are just some simple cards that you can pick up, two or three, four of them. Just use those to hand to people. In your order of worship, you'll see sort of an outline just to kind of help you so it's not overwhelming to focus on some different groups each week this month. Start this week by talking to your family and your relatives. Can't really get any easier than that. Invite them to come and worship with you on Easter Sunday. And then coworkers and classmates, friends, and then neighbors. You know, those people you've been praying for. To actually invite them to come and worship this Easter. Who will you be? Who will you be? Faithless Israel wandering aimlessly in the wilderness of mediocre Christianity. 
or strong and courageous Joshua, boldly stepping into a lost and dying world, holding out the hope of Christ. That's the choice before each of us today. Some of you in this room today, the step you need to make is you need to cross over from death to life from being lost and an enemy of God because of your sins to being saved and a child of God because of His grace. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never asked Him to forgive you of your sins and to come and to live inside of you, to help you to be everything God wants you to be, then I invite you this morning to be strong and courageous. Take a step of faith this morning and come and know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Maybe God is calling on you to take a different step of faith, to come and unite with this church family, to say, you know what, I want to be a part of what First Baptist is doing to reach out to the lost around us, to boldly go into this community and into this world with the hope of Jesus Christ. Would you come and unite with our church family this morning? Or maybe today you just need to say, you know, I've been a little bit too much like Israel wandering in the wilderness. This morning I just want to rededicate myself to be strong and courageous, to trust and obey God. Would you stand and would you sing with us as you respond?